interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Klaus Babenhagen, who covers the island for German media. Great to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing Chinese military exercises in the Taiwan Strait, the Premier's explanations concerning his opinions about Taiwan independence, the Central Election Commission's passing of a review of a controversial same-sex marriage referendum package, a New York Times article that made news here this week, and the establishment of a centre to combat fake news. But we'll begin with President Tsai Ing-wen, who flew to Swaziland in southern Africa this week on what was her first state visit to an ally on the continent since she took office. That continent, of course, being southern Africa. Now, Tsai and her delegation were greeted by Swaziland's King Mswata III with a full military salute and performances of traditional folk dances on their arrival in the country following a 13-hour direct flight from Taiwan. Now, she was there to attend a ceremony celebrating the 50th anniversary of Swaziland's independence and also the King's 50th birthday back. Now, in her speech at the ceremony on Thursday, Tsai described Taiwan and Swaziland as being like sworn brothers who could always count on each other's support and valued the diplomatic ties between the two countries, which are half a century old this year. She called those ties unwavering. Now, Tsai also thanks Swaziland for repeatedly speaking up in support of Taiwan's participation at the United Nations and other international organisations. Now, earlier this week, Tsai also met with Taiwanese business operators in southern Africa and she said well maybe more Taiwanese business owners in Taiwan can invest more in Africa as they seek diversification and she also touted Swaziland as being an important springboard into the continent for Taiwanese companies so Brian jets off to Swaziland I'll play the devil's advocate here for you and say an important ally um, yeah, I'm not totally sure, because I think the surprising thing is that the ROC spends a lot of energy, time and energy and resources maintaining what little allies it does have. And sometimes I do wonder if it's worth it. Um, what is particularly interesting about Swaziland is that, of course, it is in Africa, which has a high amount of African uh, in, uh, investment from China in terms of infrastructure projects and businesses and so forth. And so Taiwan is trying to fight it out in Africa, perhaps similar to how it's trying to do in, in uh, Southeast Asia with the new Southbound's policy. So can Taiwan win with regards to that? I mean, China always has more resources. So it's always good to uh, um, take a critical look at what is said about this long-standing historical relationship. Can we talk about Swaziland not being exactly a model democracy, maybe? I've got, some, I've got some facts here before you continue there, Klaus. <laughs> it's Africa's last remaining absolute monarchy. <laughs> King Mswati III currently has 15 wives. His predecessor had 125 can you imagine this is this is Monday's wife, Tuesday's wife. Anyway, well, I it's a right. process of normalisation, I guess. Yes. And it also has the world's highest prevalence rate for HIV/AIDS, and mm. life expectancy in the country is 54 years for men and 60 for women. Yeah, but and did you know yesterday the king actually changed the country's official name from Swaziland to the Kingdom of Eswatini? I did not. That's quite go. relevant. Now you, now you can carry on, Klaus, because I've given you all the facts you need to know about Swaziland. <laughs> well, 
Actually, this this king who just turned 50, um, he's also been in power for, I think, more than 30 years now. And he's been visiting, or he's visited Taiwan 16 times already. So apparently, he likes Taiwan. So if you are dealing with an absolute monarchy, of course, it's easier because you just have to get one guy on your good side and everything works out fine. <laughs> Maybe this is why Taiwan is putting such emphasis on Swaziland. But, um, I mean, for an administration that... Um, puts human rights front and center, at least domestically, or when talking towards uh, Europe and America. It feels quite of weird to have an ally like this and, um, well, just not mentioning it. I mean, it's understandable, of course. Um, Taiwan cannot, or the IOC government cannot be too picky about um, their diplomatic allies and maybe should not risk criticizing them, but I uh, still think that's something you need to keep in mind when looking at this country. Um, I think that's exactly right. Just many of uh, Taiwan's allies, which have a history of being basically bought out through dollar diplomacy, they have really questionable human rights records. Uh, for example, recently, Tsai Ing-wen in past months acknowledged Honduras as president, despite the fact that accusations of stealing the vote and vote rigging were widespread, which is particularly ironic given that Taiwan itself is a country with a history of authoritarianism and of vote buying and, and corrupt democratic practices. So, unfortunately, I think uh, Taiwan has in many cases chosen to bank on quite authoritarian or, or otherwise regimes as poor human rights records as a way to have allies against China. And of course, the Gambia being one of them. Before mm -hmm. the Gambia switched allegiances, that's of right. course, there was lots of questions about why Taiwan was having anything to do with the Gambia. Mm -hmm. That's right. And so just there's this long-standing record, and it goes back decades and decades. And so this long-standing historical record, uh, or, or uh, connection between these countries, which goes back to the ROC, is actually the KMT propping up uh, other authoritarian regimes, and this somehow becoming inherited by DPP government, which, despite claim to stand for democracy and democratic values, has not broken from such practices. And what about the investment aspects of Ty's, Ty's visit to Swaziland, Klaus? I mean, do you see local companies rushing to use Swaziland as a stepping stone into the rest of Africa? I'm not so sure. I mean, Swaziland has like 1.4 million in inhabitants, people living there. So um, it's really small. And it's uh, situated between South Africa and Mozambique. And um, South Africa, of course, is playing in another league. I'm, I'm really not sure if that can help anyone open the African market starting in Swaziland. Mm, which I think raises the fact that Taiwan is usually larger than many of its diplomatic allies, um, economically, population-wise. It's, it's larger than all of its diplomatic allies. Yes. <laughs> uh, number two is Burkina Faso, the only other African country left. And, um, I mean, uh, number one, it has um, 17 million so um, it's mm. still smaller than Taiwan, and that's the biggest of those allies. Mm. And I think just at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to compete with China. So you're just propping up, you know, or giving support to regimes and still questionable regimes, and still not accomplishing your claimed aim. I mean, one could argue that again, I'll play the devil's advocate that maybe Taiwan should maybe not put so much emphasis on its African allies, and because the money they could be wasting doing that. Um, it's funny, because just in terms of Taiwan's soft power, the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs spends a lot of money on trying to prop up Taiwan as democracy, yet in terms of its actual actions, it doesn't do that. So I think Taiwan could, in fact, put its more resources more towards building ties with democratic countries, maybe not at the official level necessarily, but through NGOs and human rights NGOs uh, and so forth. I think things are happening. I mean, also, if you look at the southbound policy, um, strengthening ties with Southeast Asia... Uh, tourism, economy, um, people to people. Um, things are happening there, but uh, they do not get the kind of coverage yet that those official diplomatic allies have. Right, and of course, Tsai Ing-wen flew to Swaziland without a stopover. Mm -hmm. It's quite a long flight. Um, <laughs> 13 and a half hours. <laughs> That's right. Although I, I, She was in business class. Of course. <laughs> Could she have stopped over anywhere? Would you have expected her to stop over anywhere? Maybe Madagascar could be like 
almost there halfway but possibly mm. or do you think the government just wanted to play it safe and not offend I think anybody? I think it's probably a safe assumption that the Thai administration didn't want to push further I mean it seems like this trip is mostly geared towards Swaziland and so maybe they don't want to complicate it by adding another country into the diplomatic picture so so does Taiwan have like the Air Force One official government airplane China Airlines which has always been ironic they just rented a China Airlines jet and flew there I think if the presidential office rings China Airlines I, don't, I think they waiver the fee I guess see so, what yeah. I mean. And then mm. it's, oh, that's, that's, that's X amount of money an hour, please. Oh, that's, that's a bit rude. Isn't it? That's close enough ties to the government that some people consider it a state-owned enterprise to some extent, which that would probably was why they go with China Airlines. Mm. We shall move on now. The international press was making hay with this week with headlines about Taiwan, of course, due to Chinese military live fire exercises in coastal waters off the coast of Chenzhou in Fujian province. Now, defence officials here in Taiwan played down the exercise describing it as routine and at a drill at battalion level and similar to past military exercises in the region. The Ministry of National Defence said it did not elevate its combat readiness as China conducted its live fire military exercise and there were also denials, denials that the Penghu Defence Command actually cancelled a live fire exercise it had planned for the same day due to concerns that it could heighten cross-strait tensions. Now, if all that wasn't enough... We had some Chinese aircraft fly around Taiwan on Thursday of this week. How they've flown around Taiwan for a lot recently. Anyway, they flew around Taiwan on Thursday in what the Chinese Air Force has called a sacred mission. Now, defence officials say the aircraft included Y-8 medium-range transport aircraft, Xi'an H-6 strategic bombers and Tu-154 electronic surveillance aircraft. Now, they flew through the Miyoko Strait into the Western Pacific and made their way through the Bashar Channel before returning to their base in China. Now, the US State Department also was aware of this and they responded by saying that Washington opposes any one-sided actions to change the cross-strait status quo, including the use of force or other forms of coercion, and is seeking constructive dialogue between the two sides of the Taiwan Strait. So, the funniest thing I read about this, is not a funny thing, but the funniest thing I read was actually in the Times of England. The English newspaper, The Times, was written by a reporter in Beijing and it said that the noise of the bombs and missiles going off during the exercise in the Taiwan Strait this week could be heard in Taiwan. <laughs> it didn't keep me away. I thought that was a bit of an overstatement. So that's quality reporting. A bit, of, a bit of an overstatement. So, Brian, obviously you weren't kept awake by the missiles going off on the Fujian coast, but... China stepping up its presence again militarily around the island. Um, yeah, I think it's just intimidation as as is probably the one would expect. Yeah, at the same time, I think a lot of this is just more grandstanding by China. Uh, again, these kind of live fire drills, though they maybe aren't so common, China has has done many military drilling in the past to intimidate Taiwan. I think the, the more uh, salient question to ask is why they're occurring now and why within the past few months China is stepping up its efforts aimed at intimidating Taiwan. But at the same time, I think although international media sometimes reports uh, it as though there is mass panic in Taiwan, there is no disruption to everyday life. And I think most people may not even be aware of this. It's just another news item that occurs once so often, so it just goes by. I think it's really important to remember that um, China did not violate Taiwanese airspace. China did not enter Taiwanese territorial waters. They did not cross the median line in the Taiwan Strait. So whatever they did here is, they are well within their rights to do it, but it doesn't mean it's anything well, out of the ordinary. And of course, they only do it because they want the media to report on it, and they want to um, enhance the effect 
via the um, media reporting that says uh, this is threatening and people are worried. That's why they do it. But I mean, as long as they don't actually fire missiles into the waters like they did in like ninety five, ninety six. Uh, or, or do anything more drastic like this, it, it should not be overemphasized. There are a couple of the papers today. The Apple Daily ran a story about the Chinese aircraft, and it said that apparently Taiwan's Air Force requested they leave the island's air identification zone 50 times, which, of course, the identification zone is technically does go into other areas. Yeah, the uh, air identification zone is not your national airspace, so um, you can demand airplanes to get in touch with you and tell you who they are and where they are going, but you cannot just tell them to leave or else. And also another thing in today's Apple Daily, talking about the Apple Daily a lot today anyway, another thing it quoted was an official saying that there there wasn't a lot of these aircraft that flew around the island on Thursday, a handful, five or six probably, and they said the smaller the number... It still makes the newspapers and it's still used by Beijing to intimidate Taiwan without putting on a grandiose show of force. Mm, It is quite expensive to fly these aircraft, so this is probably a consideration of China's as well. And yes, that is exactly right. It does get reported in the media. Um, Of course, I think uh, airspace has been in the news often due to Chinese uh, aviation routes that have declared, which Taiwan has not been too happy about. And so when it comes to that, that's part of the reason why I think China would would place efforts on uh, setting its aircraft to intimidate Taiwan. Similarly, that might be also a reason for naval drilling, seeing as uh, Chinese and Taiwanese fishing boats sometimes come into conflict. And so they, these are other areas of contestation that which have been long going. Uh, but I do, I do think that, again, stepping it up recently is probably tied to regional instability um, in the past few months. I think those intrusions of fishing boats might actually be the more worrying development because um, mm-hmm. you can actually have clashes between um, mm-hmm. people from both sides there mm-hmm. while uh, airplanes flying through another country's airspace are just something you can monitor, but um, nothing's going to actually happen. And when you have classes between civilians, then it's unpredictable. You don't know what will happen because they're not trained military personnel. Right. Right. Obviously, the, uh, a spokesman for China's Taiwan Affairs Office has also been quoted by one of Taiwan's Chinese-language newspapers today as saying that these exercises this week were aimed at ensuring that people in Taiwan do not support or help abet Taiwan independence. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, I always question what, what China does in, in exactly intend to achieve through such shows of intimidation. It does seem like uh, where a velvet glove approach would work better, you're just going in with like an iron fist. Of course, they try both. They have the 31 measures, That's right. That's we right. want to call them, and mili- they've got military intimidation and sort of, we'll call it bribery for the sake of using a word. Yeah, where's the news here? <laughs> so, I mean... They're trying both, Klaus. Yeah, they they have been trying both for for decades, basically. Mm. I just think it's a, always a worry just which one undergirds the other. You know, at the end of the day, force is uh, behind you know any any incentives they might offer. So it's, you know, there's worry there. Right, and moving on now, but moving on slightly because we're going to go back to where we just left off. Now, the premier William Lai, well, he's continuing to stoke the iry feelings of some, including Beijing, with numerous comments in recent weeks, including this week, about his approach towards Taiwan independence, which he describes as being pragmatic and based on three basic beliefs. Now, those beliefs, according to the premier, being that Taiwan is a sovereign, independent country and therefore does not need to declare independence, only the country. Country's 23 million people have the right to decide 
decide Taiwan's future and moves to make Taiwan stronger and more attractive to people so they support it. Now, this is, this is, this is amazing. This is, a man has an opinion and he's all over the newspapers, Brian. <laughs> I mean, there was an interesting news earlier this week where the Premier was walking out of an office and newspaper, newspaper people and television reporters were yelling at him Say something about Taiwan independence. <laughs> um, I think that's always good for sales, just whenever William Lai says something about Taiwanese independence. And I think that is one of the reasons why he was so popular when he was mayor of Tainan, that he knew how to leverage on this. He knew how to leverage on pushing for these ideological issues, which make, make a lot of people happy through expressing them without uh, in, in playing the media in, in order to get that attention. I mean, William Lai did previously come under criticism when he claimed it was possible to love Taiwan and China at the same time, which did seem like a step back from his previous comments, uh, being very staunch in his support for Taiwanese independence as as mayor of Tainan, and that drew him criticism. But suddenly, now that uh, he has gone back to more direct independence advocacy, that's been kind of forgotten by many. And so, I think again, William Lai is—he's quite, quite media savvy, I think, in that regard. I guess if you are mayor of Tainan, your electorate is like the um, mm. most deep green <laughs> in all of Taiwan, so you have to uh, play to what they want to hear. But uh, what you just said—those three points you made—I think he's just saying what most people in Taiwan would probably identify with. Um, the question is. Is that, Brian, is that what you would call the ROC independence thing that is not so popular in the green camp? That you say, I identify with Taiwan slash the ROC as already being an independent country and it's fine like that? I think I think he's being uh, strategically ambiguous on that. I think that if push on it, he probably might have to retreat towards a more ROC independence position. But so long as he doesn't say it, he can still sort of reap the uh, support from Taiwanese independence supporters that this makes happy. Um, so I think that is that's probably quite clever. Um, I think that you know it, it's a question though. I just think that with Tsai, sometimes she could rock the boat more at this point, just given with cross-strait tensions being what they are and what relations with China are are not going to change anytime soon. And so I wonder if if William Lai doesn't tend to sort of push things a little bit. I mean, as premier. He is an important government figure, of course, but his statements are not official government policy per se. No, they're just a man's opinion. That's right. Although when you're such an important man, it's uh, it can help but point to something or be perceived as such, I think. Like that case in currently in America. Mm-hmm, that's right. Of course, <laughs> chap in charge there, yes. Anyway, Beijing... On Twitter, that one. <laughs> we're not talking about that one. Let's move on. Anyway, and of course, Beijing has been jumping up and down about William Lai's uttering the words Taiwan independence with China's Taiwan Affairs Office, and it's been rather busy trying to counter Lai by pushing its reunification agenda. Now, this week, the office director, Liu Jiei, took to the stage at the Summit for Entrepreneurs across the Taiwan Straits, and he told delegates there that Beijing believes that national unification is the aspiration of people on both sides of the strait and follows modern trends. So, Klaus, I mean, where are these modern trends coming? Oh, there's something I haven't read about, Klaus, there. I missed that one. Well, I mean, however ambiguous Lai tried to be here, he did give China a soundbite that they will forever be able to use against him. I mean, should he ever be uh, running for president maybe in Taiwan later. They can always pull this out and say, here, he said Taidu, he said Taiwanese independence, this guy, um, he's a separatist. Um, He will not get rid of that. I mean, because China um, does not make a difference between um, ROC independence or Taiwanese independence. They just hate this word, and um, now they can always label him as being one of the bad guys. Mm, I think uh, that's true, yeah, exactly. China doesn't make these fine distinctions. I think Lai, though, probably could retreat and claim, oh, you just don't understand. I was actually saying ROC independence down the line. Uh, the soundbite does exist already, because he was said this as, as Tainan mayor, and so this is not going to go away. Um, so the question is, how much China is going to leverage on this, particularly in appeals to the international community? I mean, it will try to paint the Tsai administration as dangerously rocking the boat through comments by the premier, who is, of course, an important government figure. But, I mean, do you think it could hurt him if he does run for head of state, Brian? 
It could hurt him, but it could also to be his advantage. I mean, particularly, he needs to distinguish his brand from the rest of the DPP at this point, uh, particularly the Time administration now, which he is deeply attached to. Um, he could have gone his own way and run as a presidential candidate later on, either competing with Tsai or perhaps after Tsai left office. But he became instead part of uh, Tsai's administration. So I think he does he need his own brand in some sense, too. Yeah, and he also needs a plan B and what to do... Um Okay, premiers in Taiwan usually don't last mm -hmm. longer than one and a half or two years. When If Tsai runs for re-election in 2020, it's very unlikely that she will get the same premier all the time in her second um, term in office. So he needs to have some plan on how to bridge those years uh, until 2024 when he might when his time might come up. So what does he want to do then? He's already been premier. What kind of public office can he run for? How can he make sure he stays important somehow? Because he could go to the presidential office. Mm -hmm. I mean, just there's so many limited paths for advancement for politicians in Taiwan. You know, once you're at a certain level, you either run from, like, for example, if you're a mayor, you might run for mayor of a bigger city, which is a speculative lie, or you might enter the government as premier or take up some other post like that. And the question is really to keep how to keep himself politically viable. I mean, just by being premier, he's called on to take a lot of blows to the Thai administration, and that does damage his credibility. Foreign mm. minister. Could he become foreign minister? Um, that'd be controversial. That'd be extremely controversial. I think, uh, for example, with, with the current foreign minister, he is, a, I think, even a more moderate choice in some sense, just in terms of cross relations. I mean, he worked previously under KMT administrations. And so uh, having William Lai, that'd be a bold move by the Thai administration, but I'm not sure it would take that gamble at this juncture. We have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and the Central Election Commission passed a review of two same-sex marriage referendum proposals and one related to same-sex education this week. Now, before you jump up and down with joy and go, oh yes, they're moving forward. No, unfortunately not, because completion of the reviews has angered gay rights groups here, as all the referendum proposals were actually initiated by an anti-gay rights marriage group called the Happiness of the Next Generation Alliance. Now, the alliance opposes revising the civil code to allow same-sex marriage, but it supports crafting a separate special law to protect the rights of same-sex couples. Now, the anti-gay marriage alliance has praised the Election Commission for passing its review of the proposals and is insisting that their same-sex marriage referendum proposals do not violate the Constitution. Ha-ha! But stop! Because gay marriage rights groups are voicing their anger at the Election Commission's decision, arguing that the proposals do in fact violate the Constitution and infringe on human rights. Brian, you've written a lot about this issue over many years. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, I think it was just generally unexpected that anti-gay groups would become such a political force that they'd be able to mobilize such, and particularly that they would be able to leverage on measures that Taiwanese civil society groups have pushed for, such as referendum or rec lower recall uh, thresholds, in order to, for example, attack Huang Guochang for his support of gay marriage by organizing a recall vote against him, or now organizing a referendum. Um, the question is how much actual political force they have among Taiwanese society writ large. That's that's the question that needs to be seen now with a referendum going forward. Uh, with the recall vote against Huang Guochang, notably a lot of the groups that were being mobilized were not from his home district. They were actually going in from like Da'an and Singyi and places like that, busing in um, in order to you know organize against him. So with a, a larger referendum, it's, it's a question. Just civil society groups, though, I think they will criticize what they disagree with as unconstitutional. And so that's the impetus for this current criticism. 
Well, I, just on the way to the studio, I reread the piece that you wrote, Brian, um, mm. on um, lowering the thresholds for the referendum. Mm. And you basically saw this coming. You said uh, the anti-gay alliance might use this mm. to um, push their agenda. And now they're doing it. And you also said this may be the price you have to pay for having more democracy. And you need to have a... Uh, faith in the um, Taiwanese population to to deal with questions like mm -hmm. this. So you still see it like this? Or no? I, I have I have no answer. I feel like just the I kind of I did think that this would be a possibility, but I guess it's a question. Just I think uh, civil society sometimes does, you know. I think democracy is a, always framed as a positive word, and so when you do try to move towards a more direct form of democracy, because you see the legislature or uh, executive power as being kind of too limiting, then maybe this is what you also have to deal with that. This is a necessary trade-off that you do have conservative forces that are able to mobilize on mass. Um, it's hard to say. It's hard to know if Taiwanese society is as progressive as people think it is. I mean, in particular, civil society oftentimes acts almost like a, a vanguard that you know it tries to push society, but its views are not exactly the same as society. Although it sometimes acts as such. So I don't know. And yeah. of course, the gay rights issue has disappeared from the forefront of what lawmakers and the government are talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, w one year from now, the time that the judges gave the government is running out. If they don't do anything one year from now, then um, marriage will just apply to everybody, same sex uh, or not. Um, but the judges also left this loophole open to enact a separate law for like civil same-sex partnership unions or whatever you want to call it. So that's exactly what those groups are trying to exploit now, this possibility to push to push the government, the lawmakers uh, into going this way, into like having a separate but equal kind of uh, law situation. But um, of course, gay rights groups oppose that because they actually want to change the civil yeah, code. They, they, want it, they want everything now that they see it just within their reach. It's, it's, it's so close. But, um, well, I do not, from what I take it, these referendum questions do not violate uh, the constitution or the laws because they are specifically trying to exploit this one loophole that the judges also left open as an option. They are not trying to um, have the public decide on something to overturn the su Supreme Court ruling or anything. Mm. I think the, uh, the the actions by civil society groups sort of do assert the judiciary is the supreme authority that should decide in this matter. And so that it's interesting that then you take this view that that overrides a referendum. Um, so I think that opens up its kind of own can of worms, which is a separate issue. Um, at the same time, yeah, it does, it does seem like it's on the back burner for the Thai administration. I think this might actually flare up again in closer to the one-year deadline because people will start rocking the boat on this. But in the meantime, I mean, through these actions by anti-gay groups, that is also uh, pushing the issue for a better or worse, right? making a question that's salient again to the public. Also, I think this will be maybe will be the first referendums referenda that are um, under the new relaxed law because the Huang Guochang referendum was still under the old law, I think. So that was, that was recall vote. The, the threshold mm -hmm. right now is that you need um, to have at least 25% of the eligible voters take part in the referendum. That is um, 4.7 million. And out of these, at least 25%, a majority has to approve the referendum. And then it's, um, then it's okayed. So let's say all the um, proponents of same-sex marriage decide to boycott this referendum. Then mm. the... Um, The opponents would need to mobilize 4.7 million people. They mm -hmm. would all need to vote yes. Mm -hmm. um, if 10% of the eligible voters decide to take part in the referendum and say no, then they only need to mobilize um, well, 15%. Mm -hmm. They still have the um, relative majority, and mm -hmm. they made the 
threshold. So mm-hmm. this will be really interesting to see which tactic the the pro gay marriage side is going to use here: boycott this mm-hmm. or take part in this. Mm-hmm. And I think that they probably would take part in this, but it's it's a it's a question. I mean, just now we'll have to see. I mean, this is again untested territory. The referendum is being pushed for by both sides, by both political camps on so many issues right now. So. I mean, if you had to take book, of course you can't do that, Brian, that's illegal where we are, but if you were somewhere else and you were taking book on this, what do you think society would say about this? Do you think society is pro or anti-gay marriage, or they're torn completely down the middle on the issue? Oh, I have no idea. I think uh, I, I always try to never to make predictions, because <laughs> they might be wrong. <laughs> well, I think a really important factor is, and we see this happening, I, I know it's happening in Germany, that the older someone is, the more likely he's going to go out and take part in an election or referendum. So even though in a referendum, even the 18 and 19-year-olds can take part, they're not allowed to vote in presidential elections, but they can vote in referenda now. Um, I'm, I think they will not make that much of a difference because the turnout in that age group will just be way lower than in the um, um, older, older age group. Right. Now, an article published by the New York Times, or rather articles about that article, were abound here in Taiwan this week, (laughs) entitled Asia's Bastion of Free Speech. Move aside, Hong Kong. It's Taiwan now. The... New York Times piece argues that while the former British territory used to be the place for political fugitives, international media and human rights groups, that's no longer true because they're moving to Taiwan due to Beijing tightening its grip on the former colony. And now, of course, Hong Kong has been supplanted by the island here. Now, I spoke to one of its writers, Chris Horton, who is based here in Taipei, about why that's so. Good evening, Chris. Good evening, Gavin. Thanks for having me. Right, so Taiwan has replaced Hong Kong as Asia's bastion of free speech. Yes, well, I mean, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not really breaking news, but uh, it's become more apparent that that's exactly what's happened in, in the past year or two. Um, there was the uh, Reporters Without Borders uh, choosing, uh, choosing Taipei instead of Hong Kong for their office. Um, and then this year, there's just been more and more developments uh, including some of the things that uh, we, we mentioned in our article, uh, including a Hong Kong-based human rights film festival relocating to Taiwan um, because it couldn't get uh, enough sponsorship uh, from local companies that, that uh, or Hong Kong-based companies that perhaps didn't want to be associated with such an event, um, despite not having too much problem uh, with doing that before. Um, then you also have... A bunch of other things that didn't even make it into the story, uh, like uh, Wang Lixiong, uh, a Chinese author, his dystopian novel *Ceremony*. Uh, it probably would have been published in Hong Kong a few years ago, but uh, instead uh, it was recently published in Taiwan by Locus Publishing, and it's not really widely available in Hong Kong. Uh, it's not officially blacklisted, but uh, most of the big book chains in Hong Kong know that uh, if they want to operate in uh, mainland China, then they're going to have to uh, probably avoid the sen- more sensitive uh, materials, whatever those may be. Um, and that includes uh, Taiwan's uh, S-Lead bookstore. They, they, in 2014, uh, they got in trouble. Well, they were criticized for, uh, uh, for kind of keeping certain books that would be available in Taiwan off of the shelves in, in, uh, in Hong Kong. Um, and there's... 
there's endless example, other examples. Uh, Benny Tai, the Hong Kong University professor and democracy activist, um, he's he's under heavy fire for comments he made in Taiwan at a conference uh, about uh, hypothetical self-determination scenarios for regions ruled by Beijing, such as Hong Kong, Tibet, and Xinjiang. Um, there's there's concern that uh, this is a prelude to new red lines uh, limiting free speech in Hong Kong and possible enactment of Article 23 security law, which in, I believe, two, early 2000, early knots, it brought out, uh, I think 2001, it brought out uh, like half a million people to the streets of, of Hong Kong protesting it. Taiwan, it's, the, the pendulum's been swinging the other way. As we all know, you know, martial law uh, for, for four decades that ended in uh, 87? Yeah, 87. And uh, ever since then, things have been getting uh, freer and freer. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the uh, the people who were opposed to the Kuomintang's uh, one-party rule, they had uh, gone to the U.S. to lawyer up, and uh, they used the the Republic of China uh, Constitution against the Kuomintang. And uh, also, people took to the streets, such as after the uh, self-immolation of free speech activist and publisher uh, Zheng Nanrong or Nylon Zheng, uh, as he's also known, um, and as the organizer of uh, of the Human Rights Film Festival, Li Dan, uh, that we spoke with, uh, as he said, there's basically nothing that you can't say in Taiwan. You can call for unification with China, whereas in China, if you if you were advocating uh, Taiwanese uh, so-called Taiwanese independence, uh, you would probably get in trouble. Uh, you get a knock on the door and invited for tea at the very least. Of course, while that's a good thing, obviously Taiwan has overtaken Hong Kong in freedom of speech areas. Of course, there was an incident in your article where a, a Taiwanese director was banned from actually going to Hong Kong. Well, that's that's uh, actually not uncommon. Yeah, so his English name is uh, Kevin H.J. Lee. Um, his Chinese name is Li Huiren. Uh, he, uh, he had actually filmed... Uh, I believe in January and in the summer of last year in Hong Kong for his new documentary. And when he tried to apply for a visa to return to Hong Kong in November, he was denied. And that's actually him calling Hong Kong immigration and uh, trying to find out what the problem was uh, is the opening scene of his his documentary, which is called Self-Censorship. The the Chinese name of the documentary is, is Bing. The theme of it is... Freedom of speech is being oppressed, uh, as everyone knows, in in China at at levels not seen almost anywhere else on the planet except maybe North Korea. And uh, that's being kind of slowly exported to Hong Kong, but it's also being used, uh, you know, Beijing's trying to influence free speech in Taiwan as well, and it doesn't have direct influence over Taiwan, but it has plenty of um, economic and other ways which it can it can use to uh, intimidate and coerce people into uh, self-censorship. You also spoke to Lam Wing Kai, one of the five men, of course, connected to the Hong Kong publishing house that got into trouble and were abducted by Chinese security personnel a couple of years ago. And he had a quote, I believe it read, We in Hong Kong look to Taiwan for lessons, and people in Taiwan look to see how the Chinese mainland controls Hong Kong. Yes, well, I mean, I think that was... uh that was a, a very central quote to the uh, to the article, and I, I think, you know, if there was anybody a few years ago who who any Taiwanese people who a few years ago might have been thinking, well, you know, let's see how how things are going with Hong Kong. You know, they don't seem to be going too badly. 
I mean, up until up until Xi Jinping took over uh, in Beijing, I mean, sure, there was definitely there were definitely some attempts to influence Hong Kong, but it was really the gloves really came off uh, in 2014, uh, shortly after Xi took power and after the uh, the the failed student demonstrations. Uh, that were originally uh, called for by Benny Tai, and they were going to be Occupy Central, and they later, uh, the, the students just took over, and they, they, it, it became the Umbrella Revolution or the Umbrella Movement. And, uh, you know, if you, if you compare Hong Kong and Taiwan, uh, since 2014, since the, uh, the Sunflower Movement in Taiwan and the Umbrella Movement in Hong Kong, there's been a very uh, <laughs> unmistakable div- divergence in uh, in how things have played out in both places. In in Hong Kong, there's you have democracy and free speech uh, suffering from basically death by a thousand cuts. You know they're not rolling in the tanks or anything like that, but they're using legal means. They're using uh, commercial means. There's intimidation. There's there's kidnappings. Uh, whereas in Hong Kong, uh, you have the you have political parties that sprouted out of uh, of the movement that took place in 2014. Um, everyone's basically been exonerated for whatever crimes they had been charged with before, and you know you have Joshua Wong in Hong Kong and and uh, and others you know who are just in prison, out of prison, and you know maybe getting charged with something else retroactively again. You've got people going to prison for uh, you know for three months for for desecrating a Chinese or a Hong Kong flag, and now you have, uh, you know, potentially soccer, st- uh, football stadiums full of people that could get in trouble if, if a new law banning uh, the mockery or uh, satire of China's national anthem at public events passes uh, this summer. So it's, uh, it's uh, you know, if anyone in Taiwan, if they have any doubt what one country, two systems would mean un- under Xi Jinping, who has no visible term, you know, he has no term limits uh, that are keeping him in check anymore. Um, You know, if if anyone had doubts before, I don't think they do anymore. That was me speaking to Chris Horton. And before we go, the Association for Quality Journalism and the Taiwan Media Watch have announced the establishment of a fact-checking centre that they say will seek to combat the spread of fake news and provide the public with reliable information. Now, according to the association head, Hu Yuanhui, the issue of fake news has attracted global attention, as we all sort of know, and he also says that the public is anxious and wants to know if the information they receive is correct. Now, apparently, the Taiwan Fact Checking Center, and don't say that quickly too many times because it will sound rude, it will begin operations in <laughs> July. Now, the two local non profit organizations who are setting it up say that the center will focus on checking major news stories or rumors on the internet and in the media that impact the public interest, as well as news or information flagged by social media platforms. Of course, Klaus, we were chatting about this before Brian arrived. Yeah, um, first of all, I think we all agree that the term fake news is very problematic. I mean, what does it even mean? What does it apply to? Every site is using it the way they want to. So, um, Also, it seems like this Taiwanese group is a bit late to the party here because Facebook, um, more than a year ago, announced that they want to collaborate with independent media partners in different countries and like outsource the fact-checking to them. And, um, well, now there's a Taiwanese group, and from what's being reported right now, they are not even 
they did not even sign some kind of collaboration with Facebook so far. They just said, we want to start working. Yeah, what exactly do they want to do? I mean, the thing how Facebook said it's supposed to work is that these independent partners do the, do the fact-checking and then tell them, okay, here, this posting, we really checked it thoroughly. Um, this is, well fake news for better or worse and then facebook will put a warning message on top of it and say um, be aware if you see this it might not be true maybe think about resharing it um problem is it takes a few days until that happens everybody has already seen it and of course uh, who are those fact checkers to decide what's truth or not so um i think that's the reason we did not hear a lot about these projects in the years since Facebook announced them, because they don't really seem to be working or making a difference. Um, yeah, I mean, that's also one of the issues, though. With Facebook, the Facebook uh, people that were, sent, were looking at the news, they were accused of having a liberal bias. And so I think that would definitely happen in Taiwan, in which the media is heavily skewed, in which the public is heavily skewed. And also with this, if it's run by the government, what happens then when you have uh, changes in administration? I mean, this, this, this fact-checking center will probably just swing back and forth. Between... That's not supposed to be run by the government. It's no, some it's kind the, of the, independent oh, uh, yeah. foundation. I see, I see. They're two the, local. The, the Association for Quality Journalism and the Taiwan Media Watch are two local NGOs, basically. Mm. That's right. You do have a point because, of course, who, whoever's running these organisations, of course, has a political bent. Mm, that's right. Their political bent will come into the fake news issue. It was pretty much suggested by Audrey Tang as uh, the digital minister that the government would try to create some kind of tool also to uh, sort of crowd check um, fact checking. Although that also led to issues. And, you know, again, the, the Taiwanese public writ large also has the political biases. I just think even with a, a fact checking center that's drawn from, let's say, civil society or media groups, they also have their biases. And that, that will also lead to issues. So I think the issue is that, you know, what is this kind of objectivity that you're aspire to? And how do you cope with all the information that's being created now on the internet? I mean, Taiwan has the highest Facebook penetration in the world, and so just so much internet data is being created and shared through Facebook or Line or whatever, and just, you know, how can you process it? And then what then do, what do you do with the question of biases? I mean, everybody does have biases of some form. Yeah, and if, if you have groups like actually purposefully trying to spread um, disinformation, and then you somehow restrict them or mark them as uh, fake news, they will just call it censorship, and then their they're, they're, they're their followers will say, "Yeah, of course," <laughs> which has already happened many times. Actually, they'll start their own fake news watchdog, <laughs> probably, and they'll yeah. be censoring everybody else. It's an endless cycle, really, isn't it? <laughs> but I mean, Brian, you do social media, and so do you, Klaus. Do you see many local stories, local fake news stories, popping up on your social media websites? Um, I try not, I, Obviously not. I, I try not to pay attention to the ones that uh, create fake news, but it's hard to it's hard to prove something. Just things appear on the internet. And it's like a picture or just some text, and you know how reliable is this? So, you, you just need to take everything with a grain of mm -hmm. salt and, and not take anything for granted. I think. Luckily, I don't um, do the kind of day to day reporting, so I don't need to react immediately when something comes up. I usually can uh, wait wait a day or two and see um, how people react to it and what other sites report about it. So. I just uh, try to take my time and not jump on anything. A grain of salt? I think you mean a gravel truck full of salt there, Klaus, <laughs> on that one. Anyway, that's all we have time for this week here on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Klaus Badenhagen. Great being here. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.